this guy, Brian, who wanted to be a pilot when he, when he got back to the United States, said, uh, he was like, man, like, you talk about music all the time. It's like all you talk about. Why did you just do music? And I said, well, I really want to, but I don't know if I can. He's like, well, the hard part is deciding what you're going to do. It's, it gets easy. I mean, however hard it is, it's easier once you've got a goal. I've never known anyone with a dragon. What does he look like? Just a plain, ordinary dragon. Hey everybody, welcome back to Plain Ordinary Dragon. We're so glad you're here today. We have the infamous Bob Marston, the first part of our interview, be part one today. And I, I'm, I'm glad you're here because Bob's one of my best friends here in Birmingham. And, uh, you know, we've known each other for a few years. And I'm excited, I'm excited to bring you a little, little slice of his journey. Uh, as always, I just want to say thank you for listening, for uh, spending your time with us. We know how valuable that is, and we don't ever take it for granted. So thank you for being here today. Now, I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on, on the intro here. I just kind of want to get us right into uh, listening to what Bob has to say and to tell us a little bit about it. And I'll be here at the end to talk just a little bit more and sum a few things up. And so I'll see you on the other side. Without further ado... Here is Bob Marston. Well, Bob, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. You are from, are you from Birmingham? I was born and raised, born at St. Vincent's Hospital on the south side of Birmingham. How was growing up in Birmingham? What was it like? For me, it was, uh, what I, I guess what I perceived as a pretty standard 80s into the 90s growing up. Group activities, extracurricular outside of school stuff like sports and karate soccer, piano lessons, that sort of thing. We were, my brothers and sisters and I, brother and sister and I did that sort of thing uh, a lot. So I guess it was busy. What, what was your family environment like growing up? Mom and dad, uh, bro, older brother, younger sister. My dad worked. My mom stayed at home um, until I was, until I guess we were me and my brother, he's, well, he's three years older. So I guess, but at a point where we were beginning to more to be more self-responsible. I mean, she basically worked part-time as a volunteer at all the schools and things that we were doing. As far as like, my dad was at work, would come home, you know, relatively late. He usually made it for supper, but sometimes didn't. So I guess it, it really seemed like I would like the week, the weeks were, where my mom was my parent and the weekends were more where dad did, you know, dad was available to do stuff, um, but not always. There was, you know, sometimes he would take work home as well. So, um, but we were also, I mean, in, in addition to the extracurricular kind of stuff, we would, um, I mean, I distinctly remember as a five, six, seven, eight year old kid and older going with groups of, a, you know, diverse age group of kids, friends in the neighborhood and go into a creek, Shades Creek, you know, within a mile or so walking distance. And we would go, we'd leave in the mid morning after breakfast or something on a weekend or during the summer and be gone all day and just knew that we had to be back when we got hungry or in the evening, you know, before it was dark or whatever. And, I, and it had to have been before it was dark because in the summer it'd be pretty late. And I don't think they would let us stay out at the creek that late. A lot of unsupervised kid time. Yeah, I think a lot of us had that when those of us that were born in the seventies and eighties and grew up in those time frames, it was a lot different than it is now. Yeah. Sure. I mean, as I talk about it, I feel like I'm talking about something that is uh, no longer in existence. It's just like a, a, a concept now. Pretty much. Not a reality. Yeah. Uh, which I, you know, for me, I think it was, it was really good. I guess for, I guess maybe that's, you know, my growing up things, there were things that were really good, but there were things that, that weren't that great. But I also think that, it wasn't anything outside of a, of a, a pretty acceptable norm, I guess. Like, I don't think my parents had their issues together and as individuals and they passed some of those down, uh, but they didn't, you know, I think they were both trying their best. I guess maybe all parents do, but there wasn't, I mean, there wasn't any really like dark, scary stuff, you know, no, no kind of abuse or, or like being undermined by your parents. I mean, both, they, they both, we really felt that they loved us and that they wanted what was best for us. So and you I, had a pretty good. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, you know, as I got older, you know, when you're a kid, I think you assume whatever you're experiencing is what everybody else experiences. Mm -hmm. And then as you get older, you start to, I guess maybe if you're lucky, maybe that's something that not everybody gets the opportunity to have these observations, um, or doesn't, doesn't occur to them too. But, um, but realizing that, yeah, that I had, a really a profoundly positive upbringing. I was, you know, I had food security and housing security and 
love security like all the way through. And yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I tell my, I tell both my parents this, that I feel like they were better parents than they were better parents to us than in a lot of ways than they were, um, people for themselves. And I, I sometimes think the things that we all, that my brother and sister and I took from our upbringing that were less positive were more role modeling type things as opposed to the decisions that they made on our behalf and the way that they treated us and the way they taught us. It was more the way they lived their own lives for themselves that we then internalized and picked up on that are where the things that we've had to make, make uh, strides growing so that we don't have a similar experience as far as what, what was negative. So did you play sports in school? I did. Everything as that I can recall starts with soccer. Uh, I remember specifically that I, yeah, okay. I remember that I had to argue for, you know, not argue, I had to petition, I had to um, pitch or beg. I don't know what the word would be uh, for an opportunity to play football because, and this, this was a theme for me growing up and it really, it changed once I got to college or really once I got to high school and then uh, it improved, but that, I often felt like a bit of an outsider in my own family because I was the chubby one. Uh, I was a, a chubby kid in my, or husky, whatever the word was in the eighties. Uh, that was the section was I was husky, in. Yeah. yeah, I was, I was a husky kid. And my brother was, was slim and my sister was as well. So there was that. And uh, my brother was skilled at, at music in a way that, that I at the time wasn't, I wasn't aware of, at least I was interested um, so athletics, you asked about sports. Sports was the thing where I was at least as good as my brother and sister at. And once I, it, it was where I found my opportunity to be valued mm. by my peers and, and adults. And you were a middle child. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, my understanding is that, that middle children have to try to search for kind of where they fit uh, a lot of times in, in the family structure and uh, you know, what am I good at and so forth. I, I know that they've written a, a number of research topics on it in regards to how all of the hierarchy of the siblings fits into how the siblings adjust later in life and so forth. So then uh, after high school, obviously you mentioned college, so you went on to on college. Mm-hmm. What, what was that experience like for you? I was, you know, seeking seeking a place to be valued. I was always being smart, being good at school, or at least fairly good at school, um, being studious, uh, academic accomplishment was always, it was an expectation. It was something I knew I was, that was valuable that I was good at, but it was also everybody like, you know, but all my parents, cousins, brother and sister, everybody was at least a little bit above average at school. You know, we had, we had areas where we struggled. Some didn't. I mean, I had a, a one cousin that hasn't gotten a B in his entire academic career. So the like academic achievement was, it was something I knew I was good at, but it wasn't something special. Um, so as far as college you were asking about college that's when that came back up because I there was always the expectation that I was go that I would go to college um and there was wasn't really spoken other than that you can do whatever you want to do but I knew that one of the things that like you might as well if you could go to college go to graduate school get some sort of professional opportunity whether I mean both my parents were lawyers there weren't many doctors in my family but that would would have been available too it was always considered like well that's real hard because it's science and there was kind of an idea in my family that you know we're we're words people we're good at at, you know law and literature and that sort of thing but not so much the science and the math although there are plenty of us who are good at that um, not my particular my two parents Um, we have engineers in my mom's side but mom never identified that way so as far as college, you know, one part of it was you're going to go to college to a, a challenging college and do well uh, and find something that you're going to be you know, some kind of not necessarily academic pursuit, but um, something that is um, something professional, something that, that requires that education. That's the point of it all. Although the, I was also I also had a really strong support of, you know, there's a value in education, not just for the job you're going to get, but what just being an educated, aware person. So there was the academic side of college, and then there was a social side of college. And uh, for me, it was from going from middle school into high school and then high school into college, there was the, I had the cycle of feeling like, okay, these are new people. I can, I was always really good at making friends. That's another thing that's been consistent about my life and really not intimidated by new social surroundings. Like there were, my mom tells a story of me going to Camp Cosby, which was a stay away 
camp as like a seven year old, I think, uh, seven or eight years old. And they came to the school, the representatives from the camp came to the school, talked about it, pitched it to us. I came home and said, you know, this is what I want to do this summer and went with no friends, didn't know anybody there. And there was an option to, you know, come home, like show up on Wednesday or leave on Thursday early. And I was like, no, I'm staying there. You know, I'm doing the whole thing. This is going to be great. And I wasn't, I, not even like, this is going to be scary, but I'm going to be good. You know, I'm going to be brave. I just was, I didn't occur to me at all to be intimidated by hanging out, you know, sleeping in a, in a bunk situation with a whole bunch of new guys that I didn't know and sharing a bath. I mean, everybody gets a little weirded out about sharing a bathroom, I think, until you're at least in college or a little afterwards. And maybe some people continue to, which is valid. That's fine. Yeah, but, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, being a bit adventurous socially was always new. So at each graduation, if you will, I would think, like, okay, great. I'm going to a new place. I've learned a lot about myself and I feel more comfortable in myself. And so this is the place where I'm going to be able to find people that I can connect with and feel, I, I, I guess, satisfy something I was seeking as far as community and uh, fellowship or something like that. Um, but each time, it, you know, there would be some successes and some stuff, especially even looking back where it's like, well, that was exactly the thing you thought you were looking for. But also consistently for each at each time, there was a disappointment where it's like, but this it isn't what it what it claims to be. And there's a, and that was, I guess, one of my biggest things is like whether it was uh, to some extent, some of those experiences I had in high school with group group oriented activities, but more so in college. Uh, in in high school, it was more like it, there was value in the doing of the of the football or the, I was in the theater, I was in choir, and there was camaraderie in the doing of the task of the activity, you know, practicing and getting ready for games and going to games and people in, I knew that people enjoyed my company. Most everybody said I talked too much. That was the consistent complaint, which, you know, that is what it is. Well, you, you know, what you have is a, is a high social intelligence is, is basically what that, that boils down to. You have an aptitude to talk with people, to gain their trust, to bond with them in a way. And some people don't have that. Uh, I'm lucky enough to do that as well. I'm kind of a social butterfly too. I'm milled into situations. And so, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, but that, that's, that's what I see is, is just a very high social intelligence. You're able to read situations and people and, and see beyond what's actually visible. And it, it's just kind of an intuitive thing, really. Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, that being that it is that way, I don't really... I don't often think of it that much. It's just mm -hmm. the way I relate. It seems like the the logical next step or maybe the finishing of that little segment of narrative is that it was really, I guess, getting out of of college and getting into my teaching, which was where one crisis of life ended and immediately another one picked up. So I, I sort of came into my own knowing that I was interesting enough to be around and it become comfortable enough that I didn't talk quite as much. So I kind of came into my own as a grown up socially, but at the same time I had, uh, so that, you know, that, but that subsided and immediately picked up a massive career crisis. Cause I would have gone through college as an education and foreign language major and minor and was going to go into schools that needed a lot of work. Um, and, through for, through dynamic foreign language classes like you know change the culture of the school and and that was working it was happening it was it slowly but surely it was working uh but it was it was taking a toll that i hadn't anticipated really um yeah it was it was kind of turning me against uh it was i was it was kind of draining my hope i guess because it was clear that the problem was not my students and while there were lots of of challenges in the community it wasn't really the community either it was the design of the educational system and the things that are the other civic and social concepts and institutions or whatever that are tied into those systems that connect to it um, so it's it's you know government and taxation and resource management and all kinds of in in the cultures within all the little organizations school individual schools larger school districts um, I mean, you know, it was, I was in a district where, uh, I mean, and this sounds like I'm like being like, I'm some kind of a whistleblower, but the point is it's, that isn't the point. It's the point of like, how do you communicate this? Cause nobody could have communicated it to me before I got there. And it wasn't once I got there and realized like, wow, I just assumed, 
I, I realized I had an assumption that most everybody had about the same opportunity to education and the differences were like maybe the textbooks weren't quite as new or the teachers weren't quite as really sharp or on top of it or something. But, you know, more or less, like education was there for everybody. And if you didn't get educated well, it's because you didn't care. That was I mean, and I didn't even realize I had that assumption. But when I saw the level of challenge perceiving where I was teaching, it became clear in an in instant that. I did have an assumption and it was incredibly wrong and a lot of other things I had perceived in society began to make a different kind, but a very sad kind of sense. And as I did what I was doing, I realized that I was, you know, and this is kind of flashing forward to the beginning all the way, kind of skipping the middle into the end. There's a lot more to say about it, but what it what ended up happening is making is me realizing that as much as I am having a positive influence on the lives of these children directly and their community through that impact, and that if I kept with it, I would have been you know fifteen or twenty years down the line and would have been an institution to some extent in that little community where you know that's a person who will invest in the growth of all of us. This is more than just a job. But I also realized that I don't know who I would be after those 15 or 20 years because the people, those children who I'm positively affecting or young people, some of them, by the time I was in Birmingham, it was high school kids. But the, the thing that is holding all of us back in this situation, that the forces and the realities or whatever you want to talk about it are making me believe that this is, that it's kind of pointless that I'm helping a few kids which is, which is real and not invaluable or, or to be dismissed, but the level of stress that I'm under, because part of what I'm doing in order to affect these kids' lives is kind of buffering them from the BS that is their, either their, it's, it's almost like 90% of it's at the school. Some of it is, mis, you know, unfortunate stuff that's happening in their lives. And all of them, you know, if, if you're in a, an under-resourced community, you have challenges that other communities don't have. But what's strange is those can be overcome, and people are incredibly persistent and resourceful. And uh, But it's, it's where the system, the administrative systems, uh, the resource management systems are set up to to always fall short and to always, I mean, and essentially, I guess the, the way it boiled down to, to me was, you know, from a, like when it came clear that I had to leave was when I realized once I had changed schools and again, I thought, Oh, well I was in this one school district and it was this way. But if I, if I move and move States and it's at least slightly different, it's still, you know, still a title one school, but, but very different in kind of uh, racial and to some extent, socioeconomic diversity. I thought maybe like this is, um, not that it's it's really those th the fault of those things. It was also a smaller district. Instead of being a large urban district, it was a single vertically aligned, like urban, but uh, it, it was, it was uh, I don't know, it's not part of the county either. So it's not county, it's not uh, one Birmingham City, but it was uh, a smaller district. And so I thought, you know, this is this could be dynamic. Even though there's less resources, there's, you know, more opportunity maybe. To, to have less of what I found. Of, I guess what I thought of was just this, you know, big, big southern city, you know, capital city, sort of monolithic uh, education thing that you just, you know, me as one guy in one classroom, there's nothing I could do. And I thought coming into this new school, there would be more opportunity and less of the stress that was driving me ultimately out of it. And when it became clear that that wasn't, that it was essentially... And this is a theory I have. So this is the theory that the way that Title I funds are the way that the way that system works, which, and this is not, I was never an administrator, but from what I can tell from the way that they would, the focuses they would have, let's put it that way, is the way you get access to, or like the way you claim funds is by enrollment. And the way you garner those funds once you you know you actually receive them is by supporting that enrollment with attendance. So it became clear that like all of the things that were that I was 
championing like, well, let's do this and let's try whatever it is I was trying to do, whether it was a policy administrative, uh, uh, classroom management or school management or uh, resources like textbooks or doing, I was like, going to do a language lab and all this other stuff. It's, it's like, it's, I felt like I was kind of the crazy guy on the corner and in the town square, just like yapping at himself and everybody was looking at him like, what is that guy talking about? That's the, <laughs> where does he think he is? You know? So that when it, when I realized that it was, it's sort of like the way I think about corporations, which is bear with me on this analogy, which is people get all bent out of shape and get their feelings hurt that corporations do some of the unscrupulous things that they do in the name of profit, but the, that's what corporations do. No, I am. They create profit for shareholders. That's, that's their purpose. The definition of a corporation. What do you, what does a corporation do? Well, it maximizes profits to benefit the shareholders. Yeah, that, that's absolutely. And so, it. you know, if it's a duck, don't be surprised when it quacks and swims away. You know, that's why there's the importance of being able to have regulation within the the corporate world because you know if if you let them dump toxic waste into the river they're gonna do it because it's cheaper and i i'm not against regulation but to me it come i think you know when it comes to that stuff just we need to figure out a way to reinstitute the local press corps because that's really from my understanding of talking to journalists like for all the regulations then they have to be enforced and Corruption is insidious and it will fight. I mean, even if you can manage to get regulation passed, you can also get somehow there's that the influence of that polluter, for the example of pollution, can figure out a way to even if it gets passed, not get it enforced or even get, if it gets enforced, have it somehow reduced or not actually get the larger ones. And it gets I've heard a lot of this has regulations that the media, the medium sized companies get just waylaid by it and the huge companies figure out ways to you know move them their you know shop 10 feet this way so it's on a different property line or whatever it might be to try to avoid it whether it's you know letter of the law kind of loopholes or uh, you know corruption or whatever it might be but that if it were about kind of like that pink slime thing right so if instead of like man we're gonna fine you for dumping we're going to tell everybody in these communities that this is what's happening and this is who's doing it and make it such that that messaging can outweigh the messaging of a corporation, corporate interest saying, no, that's really not what's happening. Those fish are just, you know, they have three eyes sick. because those yeah. three eyes, it's just a mutation in that, in, in those 500,000 fish in this particular pond. It, it, it has nothing to do with, with what we're dumping. I, I promise you. Right. So I, w when I got out of teaching, I, I was in, that was, you know, I, I said, you know, I got in career crisis. So I was in career crisis for those four years I was teaching, but just figured like, well, you know, I was just, I guess I was kind of, uh, I was floundering is the right word, but like dog paddling, just like trying to keep my head above water and figure out if I could do this. I knew I was good at it, but I, and I knew I enjoyed it. I knew that it, the pay was lousy and I knew that the working conditions were not dangerous or anything, but I mean, it's from a mental health standpoint, they were incredibly unhealthy. Being a teacher is an incredibly hard job. Right. It, it really is. Uh, I, I don't think anyone that has ever been around the education system, and I worked in education uh, for four or five years uh, just in, in the information technology side of things. And the, the thing that was interesting about that is, is that I run into the same types of blocks that you talk about. You know, this is what we need to do to do the right thing. So the students get what they need and then we'll get thrown these projects that make no sense at all and just spend money. And you're like, I don't understand why we would take these kids tests and then put them in a fax machine that then emails that to another student who then has to print it out so that they can check each other's answers off this quiz. Why can't they just trade papers? Right. I, I, technology was a big thing, particularly in these underserved schools where I would be like, okay, we're going to give all the kids iPads. It's like, well, I mean, okay. But if, if, uh, you're, you're probably going to end up seeing a classroom full of kids playing on their iPads and not that it can't be done, but that just like people say, you can't throw money at something. And that's true. Anything, any of it has to be well, you know, intentionally administered and, and, and kind of, used smartly so like sometimes technology is exactly the solution sometimes it's a complication like you're describing absolutely and you know there's nothing that frustrates me personally more than technology for technology's sake uh, that that's the thing about technology that i hate 
What I love about technology is when it's applied correctly, it can make our lives easier and better. And of course, everybody listening to this goes, what do you mean technology makes things easier or better? But it does if it's applied correctly. Uh, a lot of times that's not what people are trying to do with it. So you moved on from from teaching. Mm-hmm. You, you made that decision. Uh, and where did you go from there? What was the next step? Well, and that's, that's a big, that was really uh, what I realized is... Uh, conversations that I'd had earlier in my life and an impulse that I'd had is before I could describe it, let alone understand it was something that I just couldn't ignore. And that was getting to know music better, deepening my practice in it, which I already had. And it had for a long time uh, on and off as a practitioner and consistently as a consumer, the two conversations that, that when I think about my discernment as far as like, it wasn't the decision to quit teaching, but the decision to do once I did decide to quit teaching, like what am I going to do now that I'm not teaching, which was what my four years of college were directed. Not initially I wanted to be archeologist and and archeologist, but once I declared, I declared education as a sophomore. So that like, so that would have been 2002 and it was in 2009 the 2009-2010 school year was when I decided to quit teaching. So that had been the trajectory for eight years, which had, as a 26-year-old or whatever it was, that was, that was, those eight years were the majority of my adult life. I mean, basically all my adult life. I had to figure out what to do, and I don't know that I thought about these at the time, but I know that I remember them still, these two conversations, and one was a conversation I had, bear with me on this one, my, my first job out of college was teaching uh, as a, a language assistant in France. Every year, I assume they still do this, France hires thousands of native speakers to come into their classrooms from elementary all the way up to high school and professional, not, not a university level, but up to kids that are 20 years old. If they have any education class, if they can possibly, if it's physically possible for a teacher to be present, I guess there are some really remote places or something, but they have it even in the, the French national education that exists, at least at the time in uh, like Martinique and Guadeloupe and some of some French territories had this same program. It was really hard to get those posts, of course, because <laughs> they were plush. Yeah, sounds like it. But um, but uh, so that's what I was doing. I was teaching English, providing mostly enrichment. Like I didn't have to give tests or homework or quizzes or anything like that. And we would we would uh, watch American TV and and talk about culinary stuff. It was a culinary school. Anyway, that's where I was teaching, and I lived on campus. A I ended up with a roommate, somewhat by accident. There was a professor, a chef at the school, a culinary professor who was I going through a separation or a divorce or something, but he, he came up to me in the teacher's lounge and said, Hey, I've, you know, I need a place to stay. I understand that there's uh, an extra room. I had a two bedroom apartment and only use one of the bedrooms. And he said, you know, I hear, understand there's another bedroom. Would it be all right if I stayed there starting? I think he said next month and this would have been in February or March, January, February. And he was there within like the next weekend. Like I got, I'd been gone nice. <laughs> well, I took a trip to Germany or something. I got back and I saw some slippers at the front door when I keyed into the house. And I was like, huh, <laughs> I guess John patrick is here already. <laughs> and, and it was cool. You know, we got to know each other. He wasn't, he was like an uncle age to me. Wasn't quite old to me. My dad, maybe he was probably in his forties and I was in my early twenties. So, I mean, it could have been, but it was, it felt a little more like a, like a, like an uncle or a coach or something. But anyway, one morning we're having a conversation over breakfast and I was explaining to him that I was kind of in crisis about teaching. And really it was, I was worried that I wasn't going to be good at classroom management and wasn't going to be like, I would just, you know, either like yell at the kids or just not either let them run, you know, overrun the class or like flip out and yell at them, which doesn't really work. And I would do all kinds of half-baked impulsive kind of classroom management instead of some kind of real well thought out system of making, it would make it all work. And he asked me a really easy question uh, that I guess could be hard to answer, uh, but for me it wasn't. He said, well, uh, we happen to be just finishing breakfast time on a weekend, and he said, well, you know, here you are at the end of your breakfast. You've woken up and done what you needed to do, and you've done with breakfast, so what, if you had nothing else to do with your day, what would you do? And I said, oh, I'd play my guitar and sing. And it was just real easy. Like, of course, well, that's exactly what I would do all the time if that's what I could do all the time. And he said, well, there you go. That's what you need to do. Then, not long after that, I was hanging out with a bunch of other language assistants because you go to a, 
it's called a stage d'accueil, which is just a, what would you call that? Like an orientation. I don't think there were about 400 of us total that were going to be in this one particular, I think they call them academies, if that's right. There's like six or eight of them, maybe six of them in the whole country. And we were all in Grenoble hanging out. So we would meet, we met other uh, Canadians and Americans and British people and Argentines and people from all over because they were whatever language was being taught in the schools. And they do have quite a bit of foreign language taught in the schools, more diverse than just you would have typically in the United States. So there were a lot of different people. So not just Spanish. Is what you're saying. Right. Yeah. Were, yeah. Oh, I mean, and I was, te- you know, I was teaching, but they were, you know, Spanish, uh, Russian, German. They had, and it, you know, in, the, in, in Paris, they had a lot more, I mean, even more diversity of, of the different languages. But point being, I was hanging out with other assistants. So people also kind of shiftless in their life. They're doing this one-year gig uh, teaching in overseas and not making any money but having a good time because it's things – it's weird. It's like I think probably like living like if we had to pay full rent at regular places, which some of the people did, and it made it a lot harder for them to travel. I got to work three extra hours for my room and board which made it, it was, it was awesome. So all my check went to me and I got to travel a lot, which it was, it was like 700 euros a month. But when you don't have to pay to live anywhere and there's lots of, uh, for people that were under 25, you know, you get a, a 12 to 25 Metro card. Anyway, I'm kind of getting all over the place. But the point is we were sitting there hanging out, people just waxing philosophic and talking. And I was going into sort of crisis mode. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't really want to teach. And, this guy, Brian, who wanted to be a pilot when he, when he got back to the United States said, uh, he was like, man, like you talk about music all the time. It's like, all you talk about, why did you just do music? And I said, well, I really want to, but I don't know if I can. He's like, well, the hard part is deciding what you're going to do. It's, it gets easy. I mean, however hard it is, it's easier once you've got a goal. And, and this was a guy tell who didn't want to have to go through the military to become a pilot, which I don't know if he may not be an expert, but he said, like the vast majority of pilots go through the military because you, most people can't afford to get the number of flight hours that you have to get to be a commercial pilot if you haven't been in the military mm-hmm. because you have to just pay for flying lessons and go f- or just play for flight hours, pay right. for gas and a use of a plane if you don't own a plane, which I can only imagine is an expensive thing to own because you don't need it, you know, and it's just like a car, but it flies. So, uh, the maintenance and God knows what else, you know, having to make sure it's all good. I mean, I know I, I've, I've ridden my truck in, in conditions that I wouldn't in, in a state of maintenance that I would not probably fly. If it was, if, if the mode of travel was going to be up way thousands of feet in the air, I wouldn't, I would have done a little more work before I pulled out of the garage. Sure. No, I can, I can verify what you're saying. Cause I've had, uh, I've had conversations with pilots as well. And um, with people who were in the process of getting their pilot's license. And, and uh, I mean, what you're saying or what he said was, was pretty spot on. A vast majority of commercial pilots come from, um, from the services, the armed services. And uh, a lot of times they like to, they prefer to hire from people that have had years and years of flight experience uh, as well. So yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. Right. So he was essentially encouraging me to do something where the odds would be considerably against me. And the odds were considerably against him. So it wasn't like somebody who didn't know what he was talking about, basically. And neither of us were successful, but that's sort of the point. And I think maybe that may be one of the themes that you'll find in your work on this podcast is that the determining factor is is none of the things that we say. It's not starting young. It's not being incredibly talented. It's not having lots and lots of resources. All those things help, sure. I mean, you know, if, if you've already got that, you probably wouldn't give it up. Um, but as far as giving stuff up, I talked to a guy that I take uh, music lessons from who said he would give all of his instrumental ability to be able to sing like Vince Gill. And he's a, an accomplished, he's in his, I think, early 40s, and he's been a professional musician since he got out of college. He's done all kinds of, uh, he's done recording, you know, sessions, studio, live stuff, playing for other people, doing his own things, doing compositions, doing classical music and bluegrass music and Americana fusion and kind of just all kinds of stuff. And he's able to, to make a living in teaching, um, and collecting, you know, where you know enough about instruments and you can buy something less expensive, let it appreciate. You know, he's, he's made a, a life for himself. And he said that in like in a second, like without thinking twice, I'd give up all of my instrumental ability if I could sing like Vince Gill. Pete, I mean, and he just picked Vince Gill. Cause I mean, he's one of the, you know, from a, a in that he also lives in Nashville, this guy. So you know, in Nashville, Vince is kind of, if you're thinking like, who's the most respected singer in this town? Probably Vince Gill. He's among, one of them. Yeah. Among others. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, as far as just like, you can, you can hang a whole, you know, 12 people. You could go out with a 12 piece band with Vince Gill fronting it 
and everyone would get paid and everything would be all right. So from a business standpoint, it's like, man, if I could work forever, <laughs> I sing like Vince Gill and always be working. Yeah, that, that's interesting that, that you're right. Uh, even even working on this podcast project that we've been doing, it's interesting to me because things take paths that you just don't expect. And some of the interviews I've done, I've been, I look at them when I'm like when I'm doing the editing and, and when I'm listening to the podcast and I think, I'm not sure how this is going to resonate with people because some of the, the episodes that resonate most with me don't necessarily resonate most with other people. And so what I've seen is, is downloads of certain episodes uh, that I didn't expect big download you know, episodes are. You can call them big sellers. Come on. Ellie. Big sellers, big sellers. Well, when we start selling something, but anyway, so yeah, I, I can kind of, I can see that. I can see how the, the path, you know, you can stay in that, in the flow of whatever your passion or passion is not the word I should use, but purpose. I think purpose is a better word. And when you get into the flow of your purpose, I think things kind of take on a new life and you're not really sure exactly how it's going to work, but you know, the river you're in. Yeah. And I think if it's, if it's going to be a thing, I know that, uh, this reminds me of some other really great advice that I got just at the right time. The point it supports is that when it comes to creative endeavor, you can't let your expectations or, or your needs sometimes to be a determining factor in how that and how you plan for it. Um, I was sitting in an auditorium uh, with my mom because she wanted to see the trailer about the Roosevelt's, which was the new uh, Ken Burns documentary. It's going to be on PBS. It was just a trailer. It was cool. There was a talk back afterwards. And then after the talk back with some of the people that were involved in the making of the film, uh, I uh, like anthropologists or maybe historians or something. I'm not really sure who, but not Ken Burns himself, but some people that were involved with the film when it got, when they, when all that, you know, the, the video trailer, then the talk back. And then after that, Bobby Horton, who was involved in making the music, some of the music for the film, um, and has worked with Ken Burns in the past. And is that's one of his kind of specialities is, is musicologist. Like if you want period music for a project, you might find yourself referred to him because he knows a lot about how to how to make he knows a lot about the different periods of music and how to make very specifically period appropriate music so that you'll have the instruments that would be used in a particular period in New Orleans or Mobile or how music you know in the 20s sounded as opposed to the 1890s and really get it just right one of the first things he did I think that actually got him in touch with Ken Burns was he did a thing called Homespun Songs of the CSA that was uh, you know 18 mid 18th century or 19th century music that would have been the music of the people that fought in the civil war that tape was sitting on somebody's dresser or not dresser but office desk when ken burns was talking to that person about uh, i'm going to do this you know this documentary about the civil war and and sure enough by you know he handed me well you should check this guy out he, he might you might want him to get him involved and anyway so bobby's had a really successful career in music. He's also in a band called three on a string and he's done, I don't even know all the stuff that he's done. Kind of tons of stuff. Uh, he does producing and recording all kinds of things. Anyway. So they asked him at the end, well, you know, since you're a successful musician and we have people at this, this was at ASFA, excuse me, the auditorium happened to be at a fine arts school, high school. So, uh, the, one of the teachers wanted to do a, an advice piece from Bobby to, you know, people that were interested in doing being in the music industry. And it was crazy cause I was sitting there with my mom and I had just had a bit of a, of a crossroads in my life where I, you know, as it turns out, made some pretty good decisions given the, those crossroads and was re, you know, again, recommitting myself to figuring out how to do, how to be creative and make a living at it and, and express myself through music. So there I was sitting, listening to someone who had done it advice about how you might go about doing it. And one of the things that he said was, or his, his message was, if you want to do something in music that is a credentialed path, then go get the credentials. If you want to be a band director or a choir director, or I, I mean, if you want to be a composer, Hollywood or New wherever it is, and be like, I'm, I have a degree in composing in composition, and I can be your music director and compose or perform or whatever. You know, you, you want to be in the symphony, go get your degree. Uh, but otherwise, he's, his his uh, advice was absorb just study what it is you like in your art and be a practitioner of it but also find something that will make you some decent money that doesn't take as much of your time uh, for him he uh, loved history and music uh, but then when he went to college he got a degree in finance 
maybe economics or something. And he sold insurance for years or some years at least while he was getting things. And I, you know, he tells a story of, you know, eventually music got to be more and more and more where he had a point where he could decide if I put everything I've got behind this, it could be my, it could be my living. And he did it. But the, the message of it was that you can't, I guess it was sort of an argument against the starving artist idea. You can't hit to, what he was saying is if you, put yourself in a situation where you're asking your art to make your money for you before it's ready. It can really stifle it and it can really frustrate you. And I guess maybe stunt, I don't know if stunts the right word, but, but you end up creatively blocked because you're asking something that's not prepared to walk on its own legs and support you. It can't even support itself yet, much less support you. And you're asking it to, to do both of those things. And you're just, you're going to, end up, you know, bartending until you're 45, which may be fine for you. I, you know, that's not sure. a thing, but his encouragement is if you want to break through and make your living with your creativity, develop it on its own until you've got something you're comfortable, proud might be the right word. I don't know, confident in, and then go for it. Oh, that, that's pretty good advice, actually. I mean, because he's in essence saying, you know, use your day job to finance your creative endeavors until the fi- the creative endeavors can finance themselves. They begin to take a momentum. And he said that's what he experienced. I mean, he like, this is exactly what I did with my life. I mean, and I guess maybe his, his point was I'm giving this advice not because it occurred to me to do it this way, but because it's just the way that I did it and it worked. Um, and maybe he's seen enough people try because, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, for all the people that do, you know, have day that make a a good attempt. I mean, I've seen so many skilled players and writers and singers and things that, that don't seem that don't put it together and make a living out of it. And so it can't, again, going back to, well, is it being good at at your instrument? Well, not necessarily. Uh, Is it, is it any of these things? And it's really more about just, you know, finding your own path. And that's the, the, maybe, I, think, I can't remember if he said that in this talk or now I coincidentally I sing in a choir that he sings and he's just a church member and that's what he does when he can when he's not on tour he's there but I you know for me it's a big part of my music development is being in this choir around solid musicians but he said in you know since that um that you gotta know like what you're selling so to speak you got to be good at your art but you also like once you're once you've done that and you got something you're proud of you got to figure out like you and i've talked out about quite a bit actually you got to find you got to reach get find a market you got to reach out and find you got to find your audience you got to find audience, the, yeah. the people that resonate with what you have to say i think that that a lot of times you know you can you can recognize that the audience the people you're wanting to talk to, your people, your audience, you just have to find them. That's really what it's about is you take your creative endeavor, whatever it may be, and you have to find the people that it resonates with. And that's, that's how it supports itself. Ultimately, uh, it goes back to, um, Kevin Kelly's, uh, a thousand true fans, which we've talked about in the past as well, uh, in, in regards to supporting creative endeavors and, and whatnot. So and it sounds like pretty good advice you got from him. The time frame that this process has has unfolded during in my life, uh, I wouldn't want to see that written down. Let me put it that way. Uh, that was weird. Uh, <laughs> um, I can't help but acknowledge that it is a little untraditional, but one of the things that I've had to overcome throughout it is the fact that it's non-traditional you know, when I look up the stories of my heroes, I'm yet to find one that has one much like mine. There are some that are close or some that, that have the late start element to them. Like Bill Weathers, for example, didn't get a guitar until he was 30 years old. But he had also been raised in, in a uh, very musical like community from a church standpoint. And so he was doing, essentially doing a version of what I'm doing at the church where I sing in the choir. Cause I was raised in a Catholic church post Vatican too. So there just really wasn't much. It was, uh, there, there are hymns that we come across at the Presbyterian church where I'm saying, I'm like, Oh, that's Catholic one. And they are all like super simple musically. And, and I think the idea was text and the music and they're real, like I guess dumbed. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking of them in a negative way. I think the positive point of having the music the way it was when I was being raised in the Catholic Church was, was to make it inviting and welcoming to people who listen to you know Peter Paul and Mary or something. I don't really know, uh, you know, but that's what that's what it was. And so the idea of like, 
I, you know, this really awesome classical sacred music or, or more modern contemporary stuff, but the stuff that's more challenging from a musical standpoint, something that's a little yeah, challenging, I guess is the word. I didn't have a lot of that. So anyway, point being like, I think a lot of people who are musicians, maybe they're like, I have a very long version of, man, I'd really love to do this as a little kid thinking like, not even knowing what it is like, but man, Cindy Lauper, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Arlo Guthrie, like that's, that's, I got to do that. Like I want to do that. Do you remember when, uh, as a child you kind of identified and was like, oh yeah, music is going to play this. Like, this is kind of the thing. Like, uh, I can't because it was always there as soon as I had thoughts. Like it, it, it was a pre thought thing. Um, and the reason I can, or one of the reasons I think that, or I believe that part of it is that I can't remember a time when I didn't want to do it. Uh, another is that there are pictures of me like doing, like grabbing stuff and turning it into a microphone when I was like four years old and five years old, where I don't think I had any concept of a job. I mean, you know, there was some like in the Richard scary books, you know, somebody's this worm drives to the store and, you know, is a cashier and this worm is a, you know, is a construction guy, whatever it is, the village people. But it wasn't anything like no, no sort of abstract developed idea of a career or anything or a job or that you're going to have to do something like, and you know, like how John Lennon talks about, it occurred to him like, man, that's the job I want thinking of it really in terms of a job mm-hmm. um, and not to, to undermine his creativity. But I mean, in, in my little understanding of Lennon's style, like he was a real matter of fact kind of guy. And that's, it was like, I know I've also heard a quote of his that uh, he's, I'm an ordinary person doing extraordinary things. You know, he thought he was doing some pretty awesome work, but he didn't feel different. He, he felt like he was just following whatever it was that was guiding him like anybody else can. Um, and who knows what you're going to get, but you got to follow it. And maybe that, you know, that's what um, that's what I'm doing. It just took a little while to get there. Yeah, that, that discernment period just take, has taken a while. Your journey was just a little different than everybody else's, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and all I can figure is there must be some point in that. Because when I when I let it matter, I don't. I don't have as much fun and I don't uh, grow nearly to the extent. And when it, when I don't, when I think it either doesn't matter or that it's kind of cool that it's happening the way it's happening, then I have more fun, lots of fun, lots and lots of fun. In some ways there is though. Cause like, you know, I was, uh, you know, inspired by my brother's playing who's older than me and I had cousins that played a little bit too. Uh, on both sides of my family. And so that was, I was drawn to that aside from just being on the radio or whatever. And I would sort of dip into it. Like when I was 10 or 12, like when I was eight or nine or 10, we were going to go to, we were on our way to the Birmingham boys choir auditions. Uh, and then like me and my brother, my sister, somebody wasn't getting along. And it was one of those like one more word and we're turning this car around. And so we turned this car around. And so I didn't, I didn't end up in, in Birmingham boys choir. And then when I was like maybe 11 or 12 and my brother was having a birthday and getting a new guitar and I was saying, you know, I want to do, I want to do some music. And they would, it was one of those things where I would talk about it, but I would never do it. And and not that it's anybody's fault, but there wasn't anybody there either. Like, okay, so you want to do this, like, like kind of like a uh, Mr. Miyagi where it's like, okay, well you want to do this. We'll do this other thing. It's like, well, what is that? Like that isn't the thing. It's as well, you know, you've, I've just fixed up your whole house. And then he, he, you know, he says, now and he punches at him and he says now paint the fence you know wax on wax off and he he realized he's learned all this karate or this martial arts defense stuff so i didn't really and i think some learners need that some learners don't my brother was somebody that you they put a piano in front of him and it just made sense to him you know and he got a lot of instruction uh, when i was 12 when i was there was the birmingham boys choir thing when i was 12 i got a bass and played it for a little while but the person that i went took lessons from was was tabbing songs for me so didn't really teach me much about the the foundations of the instrument or the music theory, theory. Yeah. well but i mean even if it wasn't theory you know the idea of like you're the bass your job is to create the groove and if there's drums and there's other instruments guitars and horns and things you're going to be locking in with the drums to create to bring tonality to the drums, to the rhythm and the groove of the song. That's what you do. And this is how you do that. And, and essentially give me stuff that I could be, you know, 
from my, from my perspective as an educator, it's all about empowering somebody. So that that is usually a process of giving them something that's relatively easy, if not hopefully immediately accomplishable, so they they can feel successful. And then so you've now established a momentum, and then you begin to challenge that momentum just a little bit. And it's all always about you know mostly succeeding, but challenging enough to lead the way towards growth. Uh, so that wasn't happening. So based when I was twelve, then when I was it, coming out of high school, I got money for graduation and I bought a guitar with it. I was 17. Took it to school, was learning some chords. And every time I would get an instrument, I would learn someone. I would not really enjoy it when I would do it, but I would never stick to it. And I, that's as much on me as anybody else, I suppose. I mean, I could get into the why of it, you know. And that, I mean, that's the thing, you know, when, when, when we pick up a, a good habit and follow through with it and when we don't, I mean, it, who knows? Uh, there's definitely something going on and there's factors that are in our control and factors that are out of our control. Ultimately the ones that are in our control, the only ones that really get to matter, you know, need to matter. If you can't do anything about it, what the hell? So I bought a guitar when I was 17, took it to college, was learning some songs, got stuck on making, uh, making an F chord essentially at, <laughs> at the first position. So I wasn't able to, and you know, I think somebody probably told me, well, you can play this other F chord, but I'm always the person who's like, I want to learn the real one. You know, which is is a good impulse. It's also a foolish impulse. It just depends on the context and, and how stuck on that you are. Because my thought was, well, if I learn the easy one, I'll never learn the hard one because I'll just always use the easy one. That's Maybe that's one of the things I struggled with was understanding that any of these things are like, it's both. Yeah, if you if, if you learn this three-note three F chord and don't ever learn an, another one, I mean, then you'll only know one. And maybe you'll only need one. Maybe you'll need more and you'll, it'll become a thing and you'll get yourself to do it. But point being ended up, uh, needing to go to the bathroom and deciding to jump or something. Not real sure. I was in my sleep, uh, in my very deep, deep sleep. (laughs) And I fell off the top bunk and somehow something of me landed on the enough to bust the top. So it wasn't like a nick on the side or a hole. You, know, you see Willie Nelson's got a hole yeah. in his guitar. No, it busted the bracing. So once you bust that bracing and the top is no longer sturdy and the bridge is all, yeah, it was toast. That was it, into that guitar. So flash forward another four years, I'm in Germany, student teaching on a military base, and I had been singing with a buddy of mine, and he would play guitar and I would sing. And I, you know, he wasn't there because he didn't come to Germany to do student teaching, so I was all by myself and... I was looking online. I was like, man, I can get a guitar from Musician's Friend for 50 bucks, man. It was, a, it was they're called Rogues. Oh, man, yeah. And they are awful. But <laughs> they are instruments. They make tone. They're not just, they're better than First Act, you know, the Walmart brand. So I got that and the whole starter pack with the metronome, which was a confusing contraption I wasn't really sure of and didn't use for probably another decade. But it showed up and I started, and that, that is the line that, continues today so when people ask me when you know how long you've been playing guitar i go back to the 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 uh, rogue the rogue yeah uh january 2004 going rogue yeah that's a rogue rogue bob you know the the rogue line uh and i'll just have to say this i have had a number of friends who had rogue instruments and uh, they are pretty cheap but they're also pretty durable and you can get a good one too not not a great one obviously mine wasn't one of those (laughs) I've got a buddy in Texas who played a rogue for a really long time. The 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 bridge came off, and so he actually took like um, drywall screws and drywall screwed it back in. The, you know, it was his bang around guitar take wherever you know. That, say that again. That kind of oh man, and uh, he played it for a really long time. I think he retired it not long Those after. Those bridges I left. do come up. Mine was was on its way. If I'd have kept playing it, it was you could see it was beginning to lift off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder what it would have done to my hand if I was playing it while it happened. Ooh, I don't want to know. Yeah, I mean, because like a broken string can cut you or, you know, at least scrape you a little bit. So I'm poking the eye. The whole bridge. Of course, I don't have glasses like you. I do. I have thick, thick glasses. So, me. okay, so you started, you picked up the Rogue. You started playing in Germany. and That was 2004. And then I, so I did that. I was traveling all around for years. And so I would always have my Rogue with me and I would, you know, play on street corners and play wherever I could. But I didn't ever, I neither, I didn't like trying to approximate albums because I couldn't. And I didn't like, you know, I, I didn't have any concept of how to practice. And I guess, I mean, again, it's, it's one of those things where if some musicians pick up their instrument and it occurs to them, 
to do things sort of, and it's more natural to do them more appropriately. And I think the younger you are, the better chance you've got that that might happen if it's going to happen. But nobody starts out with fantastic technique with some exceptions. I mean, there are people, it happens, but you know, that's a pretty rare, pretty rare group. Uh, Just like, you know, athletic, not very few quarterbacks pick it up and have a perfect throwing motion. Some of them as you know, is proved by the NFL have a, an an unconventional throwing motion and it works and people just have, they don't like it and it pisses them off. You know, the the real mechanics driven coaches and practitioners and whatnot, but it is what it is. Traveled around, played, learned songs the best I could, but it was always alone. Like I didn't have, I neither had teachers nor very many collaborators. Um, Not a lot of community, which I think is sometimes you know, if you're playing along with records or you're playing with other people, like the fact that I didn't like to use a metronome, I sometimes didn't like playing with other people because I didn't understand how it worked. Um, it was really just kind of, and I guess, I mean, as I've looked back on it, it was really relying entirely on talent. Like, no, I had no idea what I was trying to do or like no instruction, no guidance, no, none of that, none of it. It was really just, I just happened to be, I mean, so in some ways like that was, I guess that's what, what anybody's talent does. And I, when I'm with my experience, you know, sometimes I'm, some of them professional music, music uh, peers, a lot of them are teachers still in the context, but some are getting to be collaborators, which is kind of cool. They'll say that, that, yeah, it's um, who knows about talent because a lot of times when you have amazing talent, it's also surrounded by an environment that like, like Victor Wooten talks about, like I was, I was playing bass when I was two years old. Somebody somebody that knew what they were doing to teach me put a bass in my hands and said, Vic, we want you to be the bass player because you're the little baby kid. And that was Reggie Wooten, who was 10 years old. And so by the time Vic was five, he was playing gigs. He was a professional musician playing at Bush Gardens and stuff like that. And who's to say what of, what's the ratio of talent? It's like nature versus nurture, and which is a kind of another discussion, a more broad discussion. But so at any rate, I traveled around. And I played my guitar when, for whoever would listen. 2004 six so it was in 2006 only two years later that I had ended up inheriting back that bass that had been my brother that had been mine but then my brother co-opted because I didn't play it and so it was the bass amp and that it was ended up at my parents house and nobody had taken it with them so I had a bass and an amp and there I was at an open mic in Jackson Mississippi Halloween of 2006 and these guys that were also performing at the open mic, uh, but that did were doing gigs also, being paid, uh, around town, uh, needed a bass player. And I there happened to be a bass at the Halloween open mic, and I played it, and they said, hey man, do you have a bass of your own? And I said, you know, as a matter of fact, I do, and I got a rig too, and because I, I thought that was the right word. And uh, for, for an amplifier that had all the appropriate chords and plugs and things, uh, and so I had the job. I was, I was, I was the bass player in a band and that went on, but you know, as, as will be the case, you know, you're you often are around your peers. And so those guys didn't know much more than I did. Uh, and I kind of went about, I asked my girlfriend at the time who worked at a music store, like, what should I do to learn bass better? And so that was the first time I encountered, I never thought about it this way, Elliot, damn, getting into that band. And knowing that I was going to be expected to play blues bass and know what I was doing, and I realized I didn't know what I was doing because previously I had gone on the fact that I was the singer. And like, and to me, what singing meant was to be, you know, emotive as I expressed these words. As it turns out, I had horrible technique and was really kind of damaging my voice with the way I was singing, but it's okay because voices are resilient most of the time. But this, I knew I didn't know how to do it. I knew that my role wasn't to just be the emotive front guy with long, cool hair or whatever, you know, whatever I thought, you know, to connect. I knew that, because again, I guess going back to the ability to have social IQ and connect with people, that was, that was what I knew I could do. And I've always been able to do, I mean, even with my brother back in the day, he didn't like to sing. So he would play Brown Eyed Girl uh, and he would say, sing it, Bob, sing it. And I would sing it. And that was my job was to connect the worlds of musician to non-musician audience people. Um, so when I got in that band, I knew that that wasn't my job and I didn't know how to do my job. I mean, I knew, you know, some of the notes on the neck and that's how I'd gotten the job initially. And blues, you know, is 
a very intuitive form. You know, it moves. That was the first music I remember being able to anticipate when I was I was down in New Orleans on a party trip, because I, like I said, I mean, I was doing a lot of consuming of music when I in these periods when I wasn't playing music. I was going to festivals and shows, and I got into what I think of as music for music's sake, music like uh, like the Grateful Dead and stuff that wasn't like that was totally countercultural, which is how all that's a whole nother conversation. But me and my, you know, essential identification as a, uh, as a countercultural kind of person. Like I don't want to do it because like, I don't want to do what everybody else is, in, is doing, which I think most people want to. And I think that's a normal, it, it's what we've always done. Like, well, what are people doing? Are they wearing skinny jeans or baggy jeans or, you know, long hair, short hair, beards and no beards and not like, you know, it takes a while to develop your own style, what, you know, whether it's fashion or music or whatever. You know, I, I, I identify more with the counterculture uh, folks like you do. I mean, that's uh, I always tell people that, you know, I always hung out with the with the folks that were in lower socioeconomic uh, areas and um, the people that were really interesting to me. They have some of the most interesting stories and most unique viewpoints, but those are the, the types of folks that resonate with me as well. So I, I can understand that because I never wanted, like I always wanted everything I ever did to be unique. You know, even if it was my trapper keeper in school, I didn't really want, you know, maybe I didn't want the trapper keeper specifically to fit in. I wanted, you know, something else that was to just fit a, out. Yeah, yeah I mean, exactly. That, that was, and I think, you know, we all want affirmation and a, and kind of, well, affirmation from our peers, but some of us want it for being, unique and different. And some of us want it for being included in the same being like the mm -hmm. others. And there, I don't think there's anything wrong with either of those. Absolutely it needs to be not. both. Um, February were count. I mean, that's what you get when you got hipsters is everybody wants to be the counterculture. I want to be the not. It's like, well, how about you just be yourself? Cause that's really what we were talking about is it just occurred to us to be. And so it, it's just as valid that someone would, their authentic is white, pants for ladies i'm trying to think of like things that like it's like oh that's they you saw that in a man like because that for me a lot of times it's like man white pants like when did that become a thing like it's just really kind of a bad idea to have really white pants and live life because life isn't all like bleach white so you're gonna you know what does that mean like you have to wear like a cover like a slip of plastic over that like when you're actually living life so that then when you go walk across the parking lot you can have these pristine white pants I, so it doesn't make sense yeah i don't remember who said uh life is a full contact sport but i think they're right yeah well and, and white pants just have no place in such a life um, <laughs> and, but I th and sometimes i think that's sort of the point of a lot of these fashion things is like yeah i got white pants i got it like that i don't have to like my life isn't a full contact sport. My life is easy and wonderful. I never thought about it that way. Damn. Maybe that's what, that's what I perceive, I guess. Cause that's what I pushed back. It was like, what? wear white pants. What do you mean wear white pants? Like, I mean, you wear white pants to like, I don't know, like, uh, Hank Williams were like super white suits when he would perform, but that like, he wasn't eating ribs or like cooking something or dealing with a toddler. Like that wasn't happening. Or like walking across a dirty street that might, you know, something might kick up off of and ruin that. Because I wouldn't have white pants. I'd have gray pants pretty quickly. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'd have spotted pants. There, there you would go, be man. a multiple of colors. Well, you know, I think um, something that I have struggled with throughout my life uh, has been, uh, and I, I've been called a music snob more times than I can count, uh, a music elitist or whatever. Uh, I don't really identify with that. I don't buy it. But there are a number of people who have told me this. Dave Grohl. Uh, he's lead singer for Foo Fighters, right? I remember for Nirvana. That's the way I always think. <laughs> there you go. I remember him winning a Grammy Award a few years ago. I, I don't remember which album or song or anything, but you know, he got up there and he said, he said uh, something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing. Uh, he said, uh, "I'm really proud of this album, of this record, of this song, because none of it was sampled. It was all musicians." in a recording studio, no auto-tune, none of that. It was just straight up us and the music. For me, I was like, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Well, as it would, ha as, as life would have it, a little while later, he won a second Grammy Award. And when he came up there, he kind of backtracked on what he said. He said, listen, I just want everybody to understand that what I said earlier 
it was not meant to downgrade anyone else's creativity or anyone else's creative output. I'm not saying that sampling is bad or that autotune is necessarily bad or anything like that. If you love music, whatever music you love, you have every right to love that music. You know, I just want to let you know that's not what I was saying. And that was really a weird paradigm shift for me at the moment because I thought about that and I thought, wow, he's got a point. And, you know, if you, if you, if you love Britney Spears and you think that's great music, then man, enjoy it. That's what it's there for. I have friends that, that love an artist named Wesley Willis. I don't know if you ever heard of Wesley Willis, but I think he was a partly blind, uh, schizophrenic, uh, overweight black man. And he had some really classic tunes like uh, Shoot Me in the Ass and <laughs> some other things like that. And I had friends that loved this guy, you know, and I would listen to it and I would just cringe. I'd be like, I'm not even sure you can call that music, guys. But for whatever reason, whether it made them happy or whatever the case may be, it resonated with them. And I don't think you can ask any more of art than that. And I think that's where we're going to go ahead and leave it for today. Uh, next week, we'll go ahead and, and finish out the interview with Bob. I hope you got a lot out of today's episode. Next uh, next week, uh, when we when we finish up this, this two-parter, uh, we'll also talk some more about Bob's music and where you can find it. Uh, we'll also include one of, one of his songs in next week's podcast. So please make sure that you tune in so that you can, you can hear that, that piece of it, the exciting conclusion to uh, his journey. And, and I'm, I'm excited about that because the, some of the, the music that we're going to use from Bob is some of my favorite that he does. So, um, please make sure that you tune in next week. Anyway, um, we'll talk to you real soon. Uh, I'll miss you till we get back, but until we do remember, you may be plain and you may be ordinary, but you're a dragon and you've got amazing things to do and we can't wait to see them. It's not easy to share somebody's dream. It gets easy when you work as a team. You've got to take.